Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 102. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. It's another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. On today's show, we're going to be talking about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel, and a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. If you enjoy listening in on these Intel chats and aren't in our community Slack channel yet, then you should join the conversation. Much more information than we can get through on the show is being shared there, and you will get it in real time. You can join the Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. And as always for these chats, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Chris, what's going on, sir? I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to be here. You know, we've got some fun stuff lined up for today. I'm excited to see where things are going. You know, admittedly, last week, we had a little bit of a somber episode discussing two potentially massive breaches that will probably have long tail effects that you and I will be talking about in the future. But uh, today's a little, I don't want to say more lighthearted because they're probably still impactful, but today's a little more fun, I guess, yeah. uh, uh, fr- from from at least one topic perspective. But no, always happy to be here and uh, really looking forward to this one. And and I'll just kind of echo one of the things that you and I say every episode, which is a huge thanks to our Intel chat and our Lima Charlie community for uh, making sure Chris and I are on our toes about the latest and greatest stuff that's happening. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, I'm going to have a t-shirt store up online by the end of the month, and I'm going to be sending some t-shirts out to those folks that help us out in the channel. So uh, a little salve for the wound, perhaps. Nah, that's the chance to get into the Intel chat now and start contributing. There is (laughs) swag to be had. (laughs) The first one I have teed up for us is an example of disinformation that spread through the cybersecurity community like wildfire. And I have to admit, I also reshared it. And of course, I'm talking about the spectacular headline announcing a DDoS attack that involved 3 million electric toothbrushes, which was published by the independent Fudzilla, Boing Boing, ZNet, Tom's Hardware, and The Sun. Those are some real credible publications in that list, and as such, I have forgiven myself for thinking this was real without digging into it, and I'm using it as a learning experience. Did you fall for this one, Matt? I'm not going to lie, Chris, when you read off the the list of publications that had put this out there, a couple of them made me think if you were uh, citing uh, cartoon names or something like that. (laughs) Not going to lie. It it was one of those things where uh, sometimes the names of publications catch me off guard, but that that was not your question. Uh, So I'm just going to say this one, when I first heard it, I was like, no way, but not no way in the sense that this is impossible. But no way in this, because uh, let me be clear, right? Uh, IoT devices or, or smart devices of some sort being utilized in mass to do something malicious was, you know, it has been seen before, right? The Mirai, M-I-R-A-I botnet is, is real, right? That thing existed. We've talked about it before. Uh, if, if I remember correctly, I think that botnet was making use of people's fridges and other types of smart devices. And I will admit there's far too many smart devices out there right now. Not far too many that we have too many. I, I want them all, but far too many in that it would not be inconceivable to imagine an attack surface or an attack vector created by all of these smart devices, where I started to to become hesitant about that one, Chris, was, uh, you know, a, a fridge is, and there's a joke here, but I won't tell it, but a fridge is always running, right? Fridges is always are always on. Uh, therefore, the idea of a persistent connection or some sort of persistent infection, I think, uh, is is a little more believable. But I, I don't know, for some reason, I just had this idea of 3 million people brushing their teeth <laughs> 
And all of a sudden, the electric toothbrushes just start going haywire, right? And I'm like, I feel like we would have heard about this before or something like that. Or, or then in my head, because this is just me, I started to figure out what type of a C2 you'd implement into a device like a toothbrush. So that way, when it was on, you could trigger up. But then, you know, according to most dental recommendations, you have two minutes of uptime. And then the, de- the the device is no longer on, I guess, or something like that. So, and again, you know, of course, there's some devices that are probably persistent. They're on all the time, but then you're tucked inside of a home's firewall. I mean, there's, my mind went so many routes where I was like, there, there's no way, like, how do you, how do you know this? And then of course the, the technical person in me, and I'm answering way too long here, but this is where my mind went. The technical person in me was like, I wonder what the Mac address population of these toothbrushes <laughs> is so we could write detections for when my toothbrush is doing something out of band. So I'm not going to say I didn't fall for it, but it just, the technological concept of it seemed so far and vast that I was like, there's either some super smart people out there or this is just hard to believe. And unfortunately, back to you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so apparently this all started when someone from Fortinet used a hypothetical example of toothbrushes being used for a DDoS attack during an interview. Details from that interview were then lost in translation when a Swiss newspaper published an article presenting the hypothesis as fact. The sensational headline was then picked up by the aforementioned credible publications and subsequently reshared by hundreds if not hundreds of thousands of folks on social media. It was really hard not to fall for this one. The idea of three million toothbrushes running Java that get used for a DDoS attack, it's its quite the hook. And who knew that toothbrushes run Java? After reading this, I went and looked it up, and there is, in fact, a toothbrush that can run Doom. Um, first off, I didn't expect that, and that is amazing, number one. Yeah. Number two, whenever you install Java, I'm pretty sure there's, like, a, a, a screen that comes up where it says, like, on over 10 billion devices or over 10 billion installs or whatever the number is. First off, it's kind of like the McDonald's hamburger counter. It's like, okay, <laughs> congrats, you know? Yeah. Um, but then the other side of it is, I mean, those those billions of devices have to be somewhere, I guess. So that's the framework that, that folks chose. You know, I, I guess where my mind goes is, you know, that job applicator, that job rec that says we need someone who's really skilled in Java and you get there, you, you, you get your certifications, you get your degree, study hard, you get there and you're like, all right, cool. What am I building for you? And they're like, we need you to build a toothbrush app. And you're <laughs> like, oh, interesting. Okay. Not that it's a bad thing, right? But more importantly, it's just the, the scope of where folks are going with programming and what's being built these days. I'm hard pressed not to exclude any language that's out there from all of this because someone somewhere is going to take a look at that whole setup and be like, this is way too complicated. I'm going to build this thing in Python. And then someone else is going to be like, this is way too complicated. I'm going to build it in in Swift and this is way too complicated. I'm going to build it in some sort of visual editor. (laughs) Yeah. Or, or yeah. Or someone's going to be like, this is way too easy, right? We're going to go roller coaster tycoon and build it straight in assembly. Regardless point is, uh, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not surprised to see it these days. There's so many smart applications out there for these, I should say, applications for these smart devices. I wouldn't be surprised if sometimes they build with the lowest hanging fruit out there. And and in some cases, I'm not saying it is for me personally, but in some cases, Java might be the easiest thing to replicate and just modify a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah, I cut my teeth on Java, actually, for the first six years of my career. So I am I am sorry, sir. I got some battle scars <laughs> for that, I'm sure. Yeah. The Eclipse ID, I got... I, yeah, uh, that's, that's, I'm, I'm getting nervous ticks under my skin now. <laughs> 
Uh, so in the end, I don't think this one caused any damage and may, in fact, have done some good raising awareness around the security threat posed by all these, quote, smart devices. I don't know. Is filling our homes with these things a move in the right direction? What do you think, Matt? Was this a good thing in the end? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those. I, I feel like this pops up all the time. By the way, while we're talking about this, I went and I looked up the the Java Micro Edition, which I think is what's being used here for embedded and mobile devices. So it's a thing that's out there, right? It's a thing that's out there. I don't see how many devices it's been installed on, but regardless, you know, I feel like this is something that pops up a couple of times a year. You know, the 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 danger of smart devices and things like that. I mean, let's be clear. Anyone who's connecting anything and everything to the internet is expanding their attack surface in some way, shape, or form. However, Chris, you know, between you and I, the the uncle who got a new toothbrush for Christmas and it just happens to be a digital toothbrush or whatever, first off, might not even be connecting it to Wi-Fi, number one. They might just be like, wow, this thing is really fancy. I just needed to brush my teeth, right? The second... What what type of conversation are you and I going to have with this individual about their attack surface, right? It's 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 tough because I feel like the more smart devices you get, the more you get into a realm of folks who just don't know. And and I'll be as adventurous to say as they just don't care about that. And I'm not saying like I think there's an opportunity for us to maybe educate folks. Like hey, just an FYI, right? Did you know if you install this thing that Russia can bu- and it's like no that's not the way to go about it right the way to, and 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 I will be fair and say the way to go about it is not to approach someone in their mid 50s and try to educate them on deploying segmented multiple wireless networks so that way they can you know blah blah, blah and all that stuff I think the security should maybe be inherent in the devices number 1 I think that's one way to go about it right that's on the manufacturer side of things they get away with very little security on them number 1 number 2 if I don't need Wi-Fi for your device to work to function, right? So let's just say it's a toaster. I, I for for I'm gonna I was gonna say hundreds, but I'll say for at least decades of years, we haven't needed Wi-Fi for toasters to work. It shouldn't be a prerequisite for this new smart toaster to work. So if I inadvertently buy one for my non-technical family member, they can still just treat it as okay, a expensive toaster with features I don't use, but it's still a toaster. It shouldn't be like, oh, well, you know, you got to toast through your app, Mm -hmm. right? I have a slow cooker that I use sometimes for cooking, and it is a Bluetooth-enabled slow cooker, right? And now I'm on the other side of of the exact same coin. I love that thing. I love it because I can set it on my phone. I control what happens. And when it's five minutes from being done, I get a notification that says, hey, this thing is almost done. That, for me, is... One of the reasons why I won't shy away from smart devices because it lets you go and do other things. You're not sitting there staring at this thing, counting a clock or something like that. You let the technology do the work for you. The slow cooker device does have Wi-Fi capabilities. It also is single Bluetooth mode, if I want, which enforces proximity. Is I'm going to say a physical element of security because it, it requires I be within, you know, 10 meters, 30 feet or whatever. But it also isn't uh, an IP address on my Wi-Fi network that doesn't need to be there. Right. Uh, so I would say there is a happy medium. I think uh, it's going to most of it rests on the manufacturers, though. It shouldn't be you and me here saying three million people had their toothbrushes compromised. Okay. Which resulted in the ransom of blah, blah, blah. Finish that sentence the worst way you want. 
I don't want that conversation to ever happen. So let's find a way further up the chain to to drop some security in there. That was a long answer, but I feel more like, you know, there's a way to protect these from a personal device perspective. Yeah. And I definitely think we're going to see some more accountability with device manufacturers and software developers. I'm not sure if you saw the recent hearing in Congress where Jen Easterly spoke, but she called it out, you know, for too long. People have been getting away. There's no accountability, this rush to market where we don't take security seriously and, and we just push these devices out uh, with huge holes, like things that, you know, first year computer science grads would know <laughs> were, were problems, yeah. right? So Hats off to her for calling that out too. I think that's going to be uh, the the important turn for folks is, is going to be that like, you know, this thing is inherently secure because it can operate without the need for the technological side of things. Now, and I'll, I'll finish on this little rant here. The other side of it is if the device is inherently technical for a reason, meaning, you know, that's what I need it to do. Okay. Let's take a smart light bulb. For example, a smart light bulb I can put in a place that's out of reach and I can control it from afar. I don't have to install anything on the wall. I don't have to be an advanced degree holder in order to do that. I can get a sliding scale of, of apps on my wall or, you know, a sliding scale of colors in my app or something like that. Um, it, it, you know, sometimes it's, it's a, it's a novelty thing. I don't need my living room to be green when there's a <laughs> touchdown, but hey, it is right. Um, but the flip side of that is if it's inherently technical like that, where the technology, the connectivity is necessary for it to work then the security should be built in. No questions asked. Yeah. It shouldn't be like, well, did you this, blah, 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 and everything. Chris, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to maintain three, four Wi-Fi networks based on all the stuff that's going on in my house, right? I would love to be able to just say, here's one. There's some inherent security over here, a little bit of firewall action over there, and I'm 95% happy with where everything's at, not oh, wait, okay, I'm setting up this device. Wait, which network should I put it on? Okay, hold on, if I do this, all right, I need to open that mag. If I, it's, it's too much. It's yep. too much. And I'm a power user. Imagine if you're someone who has a single router and, and, and they're not, right? It's, it's different. It's difficult for them. So I want to get away from it. Yeah. And uh, fun fact, I did reach out to Jen Easterly on LinkedIn, but uh, haven't heard back. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> she might be a touch busy. I think she's <laughs> yeah. been traveling lately. Yeah. I think yeah. Uh, she's it's in some, some, some important part of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So the next one I want to bring up is a video that was shared in the Intel channel, which shows a hardware attack to bypass TPM based encryption, which is used on Microsoft Windows devices. I think this attack is a little out of band for the type of stuff we'd normally cover on the show, but I think the cloak and dagger stuff is pretty cool. And I even wrote a blog article about how Lima Charlie can be used to detect an evil maid attack like three or four years ago. And for those that are not familiar, an evil maid attack is an attack scenario when somebody physically accesses your laptop or other devices in your absence. The common scenario given is for a hotel where the person charged with cleaning the room is actually a threat actor, hence the evil maid. Do you ever worry about leaving your laptop in a hotel when you go out, Matt? Yeah, I gotta say, I, I, Chris, I worry about leaving my laptop at a, at a coffee shop, at a hotel, at an airport. I don't even, I don't ever leave it. Let's put it that way. I, it, I will tell you what though, it's, uh, it's borderline embarrassing sometimes when you're in public and you're like, I just, I just need to go use the restroom really quick. And then you're like, but I'm set up here. I'm working. <laughs> I don't want to break all this down, but what choice do I have? Right. I, I think there's definitely an element of, of paranoid security there. I only say paranoid because, 
there there is a population of people where this is a real threat for them and something they need to be weary of. All right. There are also a population of people who don't have to worry about this at all. I think a lot of people in the second group think they're in the first group more than they actually are. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not trying to deflate anybody's ego, right? But I've met some folks over the course of my career who are like, oh, I would never, ever travel to that country for XYZ digital reason. And I'm like, no offense. I don't think you're like, you're not that, I don't want to say important, but like the the nation state espionage team is probably going to have other focuses at the time, right? Um, and, I, and I don't want to bruise anybody's ego that way, but it's like, I don't really see that as a threat. Now, that being said, uh, some a lot of folks have their own ideas as to why about this. But for me personally, I'm always just careful of my devices. But Chris, I'll tell you what, it, for me, it's not because I'm afraid someone's going to steal my, my TPM key. It's, it's actually because I just don't want my thing stolen. Yeah, uh, that, That's half of it. The other half of it is I usually have my devices on me. And that's because I'm always paranoid that something's going to need to be done. Yeah. You know, um, admittedly, like, you know, if I ever get a message from someone that's like, hey, we need help with this or we need help with that. And I'm like, all I have is my phone. I feel slightly neutered. <laughs> Whereas I'm like, let me whip out my laptop really quick. I feel like I have my my whole arsenal with me yeah. all the time. So it's one of those like uh, I, 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 I tend to ramble. But in addition to that, <laughs> I tend to also be careful about where I bring my devices just in general. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I get, I get separation anxiety with my laptop too, for the same reasons you stated. I'm not worried right? about nation state actors. I'm just like, if somebody pings me on Slack and something's down or needs to be restarted, then, you know, I can jump into action. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, but yeah, it's, it's one of those, like, you know, I, I hotels have safes. Uh, I've heard of folks leaving devices in safes. I've heard of folks kind of religiously leaving devices in their safes um i I would argue and say i'm not sure how secure those safes are because i'm pretty sure the hotel staff has a reset key um but nonetheless you know i guess it's another way to do it uh but i i usually have my stuff on me anyways but uh that's not to say that you know if i ever became a target of i guess international espionage that i would maybe not heighten my threat uh threat awareness a little bit more but this one for me fell into uh one of those i don't want to call it an obscure category because again, there are a series of folks around the world who this is a real threat for them. You know, like there, there's some sensitive stuff that they're protecting and they're super worried about. Like, Chris, I put them in the same category when you and I have talked about like signal vulnerabilities or telegram vulnerabilities and stuff like that. You know, most nation states could not care less about what you and your significant other are texting each other throughout <laughs> the day. Yeah. But for the small population of political dissidents or folks who are, you know, trying to organize rebellions and stuff like that. The same threat vector is a very real threat for them, in which case, yeah, they're looking at it differently. So the, the video is super technical, the one I'm talking about, and the attacker achieved success by sniffing the BitLocker keys out of the LPC bus directly from the laptop hardware using a customized Raspberry Pi Pico. Like I said, super technical, super geeky. Um, and I guess the BitLocker keys stored in plain text in the hardware uh, so by connecting these pins directly to the board, he's able to, uh, using his own clock, detect when the signal sequence starts and pull this plain text password out. I think it took him like 45 seconds from a closed laptop, unscrewing the back, touching the Raspberry Pi to the board and pulling the key. So 
it's not an attack I think we need to worry about in the real world for 99.9% of us, but it does drive home the importance of physical security and maybe the things we think that are super secure are really not that secure or at least vulnerable to compromise. Yeah, admittedly, you know, I, I one of the funniest things that I like to do whenever we go over these different articles and stuff is uh, these different reports is uh, reading the comments section if there's any available there. And sure enough, this was posted as a YouTube video, so there are comments in there. And, you know, to me, I, I'm not sure if folks are careful with their adjectives or not, but sometimes there's comments where it's like, I can't believe how simple this was. And I'm like, <laughs> really? Like, like, no offense, but I mean, come and teach the rest of us how to levitate if, yeah. if this is an easy day in the park for you, right? Uh, that being said, uh, and luckily there is a comment, I'll quote this, I won't quote the user, but I will quote and just say that, you know, inside of the video, the, the researcher says, I did not need any advanced skills or tools. And someone in the comments was like, that depends on who you ask <laughs> as to whether or not what you did was advanced or not. Yeah. You know, running a five minute mile is extremely advanced for a double digit population of the world. It is a easy rest day for trained athletes or, or you know, trained marathon runners and things like that. So let's be clear on kind of who's who's doing this type of stuff and and where the skill set comes from. But I'm with you in this boat right here. You know, I would tend to think this isn't one that's going to be weaponized in mass. Now, let me drop in one little other note here, because where I do find this to be very useful is in cases of uh, evidence discovery, evidence collection, you know, evidence retrieval and things like that, where there might be situations in the event of a crime or something where it is necessary to get into a system like this. Now, I before anyone says anything, I don't know the laws about if a law enforcement agency were to use this type of technique to get into a previously encrypted device. I don't know if that violates privacy or any other statute or anything like that. I'm just going to say that, you know, when you think back to kind of like uh, the San Bernardino iPhone instance, where it was a law enforcement public plea, we need to decrypt this thing, right? Having a little trick like this and being able to point to it and say, hey, we use this method because it works right now, of course, how long before the manufacturer plugs this hole? Yeah. That's, that's the next thing. Yeah. Uh, interesting one for sure. And, uh, the next one I have coming up for us is from the wild, wild West labs of CrowdStrike. Yeehaw. <laughs> <laughs> and before we get into it, what did you think of the CrowdStrike Super Bowl commercial, Matt? I saw it. Uh, I will admit, I think I was talking to one of my kids when it came up, and I, I think I saw one of the Desperado spiders or something. So I kind of looked <laughs> over like, oh, I know this commercial because I've seen it teased out on LinkedIn and everything like that. But uh, hey, you know what? CrowdStrike marketing team, uh, it was a fun watch. Yeah, it was a fun watch. I've I've never visualized threat actors that way. We've talked about a lot of them, but uh, it was a fun <laughs> thing to watch. My kids liked it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right on. Yeah, I still find it kind of surreal to see these uh, security ads in public like that and like on hockey team jerseys and F1 cars. Like this used to be a thing that was sort of in the, the back room of the building, you know, and now it's yeah. front and center in the limelight, right? Well, you and I are here talking about these threat actors like from a damage perspective, you know, yeah. like the things that they do and the havoc that they wreak. And someone else is out there like, what color hat should we give them? 
You know, like it's just it's 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 a very different viewpoint. Not to say it's bad, yeah. but it's a different viewpoint on how to how to visualize these threat actors. Yeah, yeah. I think it makes it consumable for the masses or something. I'm not sure. Agreed. All right. Getting back to the article. CrowdStrike researchers have identified a hijack loader sample that employs sophisticated evasion techniques to enhance the complexity of the threat. And for those that do not know, hijack loader, also known as IDAT loader, is an increasingly popular tool amongst adversaries for deploying additional payloads and tooling. This next evolution of the malware employs a couple of techniques to evade detection. In the first one, the malware developer uses a standard process hollowing technique coupled with an additional trigger that was activated by the parent process writing to a pipe. Not sure if you had a chance to look at this one in detail, Matt, but I was a little confused by the wording here. Process hollowing, in essence, means they swap out a chunk of running process with their own code. And then in the explanation, are they saying that the code they injected is writing to a pipe which hits the trigger? Yeah, if, if, I, if I understood and went through this one correctly, Chris, and that's kind of the steps there, um, a, a process is created and then that process Halloween comes in, Chris, which you called out correctly, right? We kind of carve out a little piece of a process and drop some malicious code in there. In the blog, there's an example of a cmd.exe, right? So spawn a process, inject malicious code. The malicious code is, uh, sorry, and I'm going to read from the blog here just for folks who maybe are you know not visualizing this one. This step involves spawning CMD process to inject the malicious code by redirecting the standard in and standard out pipes. Notably, this process isn't suspended, making it appear less suspicious. So this is one of the hallmarks of process hollowing is there's that moment of pause, carve, reinsert, restart, and whatnot. Uh, And then the write file comes in. Here, data is written to the standard in pipe, sending an input to the cmde.exe process. Okay, this action resumes the execution of the child process. So yeah, how you described it is 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 kind of actually the way that it that it goes through, um, the way that it works out. It's kind of a combination of techniques there, but I think the abuse of the pipe is probably the more interesting uh, technique here. And so they're using the original process to then write out more malicious code. As as I read it, yes. But uh, if anyone who listens understands that more, by all means, let us know because I, I not that this was this is a great blog. Lots of technical detail and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, if I, again, if I'm looking through here, right, um, this effectively resumes execution of the primary thread at the shell's entry point in the child process. So yes. Very cool. Uh, I mean, as cool as this stuff is, right? <laughs> it's an interesting technique, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's cool to read about these when you, when you look at them from that technical detail. Again, it's a great blog post. Yeah. Love seeing it in that context because it... Uh, gave us like a really cool way to dive through the step-by-step process of what happened here. That process, uh, no pun intended. Okay, the second technique variation involved an uncommon combination of process doppelganging and process hollowing techniques. The threat actor or actors behind this malware are most certainly capable. And for those that might not be aware, doppelganger is a fileless code injection technique that takes advantage of a built-in Windows function and undocumented implementation of the Windows process loader. I'm assuming they take the signature of a process and sort of duplicate it so it looks the same to the system, but is actually running different code underneath? Uh, yeah, so this second one uh, was exactly that. Process doppelganging and then process hollowing together as well. Uh, again, it's it's one of those, like, it's an interesting approach of combining techniques to the point where there might be other malware families where you and I might call this overkill, um, where we might be like, wow, that's, that's a, that's a whole lot of like 
stuff that didn't need to be done there, right? But I think what this does is it does a really good job of making it tough, right? Making it really tough to analyze and kind of follow the step through what the process is doing. Um, from from an EDR, from a detection perspective, I think I should drop that in there. For someone who's walking through it manually, it's it's probably not crazy. Like it's it's definitely a little more intense, but um, it's not necessarily easy on automated detection tools and things like that. That might be looking for some of those original triggers that we talked about. You know, like oh, we can detect process hollowing, and it's like cool. Well, I'm gonna add on some other features that don't make process hollowing look the way they're supposed to look. So it's a little bit harder to go through and detect it. Because let's be clear, Chris, the common denominator between these two different techniques covered by hijack loader is process hollowing, right? There's the involvement of a pipe and then there's the involvement of process doppelganging in those two techniques. But the hollowing is really the technique that is, I guess, the primary one. Yep. Whereas doppelganging or the use of the pipe might be more of like the additional noise for the evasive technique or the additional technique to secure or ensure that the hollowing works. Yeah, both of these techniques increase the complexity of analysis, like you're saying, and the defense evasion capabilities of this malware. Researchers are also observed have also observed additional unhooking techniques used to hide the malicious activity. So I did not get a chance to walk through the technical explanation in depth, but it is most certainly looks like it's uh, cohesive and very detailed, probably of interest to anybody who wants to understand current defense evasion techniques. You've mentioned what you thought of this breakdown, Matt. Should we be worried about hijack loader? Yeah, for me, this is one of those. This is one of those techniques, one of those posts, one of those kind of you know exposés on adversaries that will probably lead to other adversaries utilizing these techniques and whatnot. Uh, again, you know, I, I view this as increased complexity, uh, different ways to evade, different ways to you know secure and ensure code execution, different ways to to get around defenses. I wouldn't be surprised if other threat actors utilize hijack loader or if there's variants of hijack loader that come out. I, I think this is you know again one of those seeds that gets planted that we will talk about indirectly or directly in subsequent threat reports and subsequent blogs, just because a thing like this is is going to get seen again and again and again. Mm. Maybe not in the hijack loader sense, but I would not be surprised if someone else out there, usually on the other side of your and I's conversations, is reading this and is like, that's exactly what I needed. And then we're going to see some successful breach take place. Yeah. And this, not I'm not blaming you know the, f- the folks at CrowdStrike. This is a great blog post, but it's more along the lines of, there's some threat actor out there, some malware developer who's like, I cannot get this thing to run. And then they read a blog like this and they're like, that's what I needed. And they go make it work and it happens and, you know, whatever. A breach is successful. But uh, it's good for us to know about as defenders so we can start to find ways to detect it or get around it. I actually had one more for us today, but I can see we're at time. So uh, we'll just save that one for the next one. Great to have you back on the show Again, this week, Matt, uh, your expertise is always valuable. As always, Chris, great to be here. And uh, I'm looking forward to the weeks to come. And Chris, I would just like to acknowledge on this episode, two things. Number one, I'm going to thank you for bringing all this together, for making this show happen and making this show a thing. For anyone who doesn't know, 
Chris reached out to me, I think some part in early 2023 and was like, hey, would you mind recording like a couple of things on malware capabilities and whatnot? And that has turned into what is now the weekly Intel chat, number one. And I huge thanks to everyone who listens, but a huge thanks to you, Chris, for making this happen and bring it together. This segues right into uh, last week, the tale of, of, of two breaches that we talked about was actually episode 100. And I don't know if there's any sort of milestone in podcasting that needs to be achieved, but if there, if there is, I'm handing it to you because a hundred episodes is, that's, that's, I mean, easy math, right? That's two a week. It's a lot of effort. I know it's a labor of love for you, but on behalf of everyone who listens and as someone who gets to talk instead of just listen, a huge thanks to you for bringing this together because a hundred episodes, man, that's a huge milestone. So thank you for making this happen. Thanks a lot, Matt. That, uh, right in the fields there. (laughs) <laughs> what can I say? It's Tuesday. We'll start off just right, you know? <laughs> okay. I appreciate awesome, but thank you, sir. you, Chris. Yeah, we'll talk soon. All right, man. Bye. Take care. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.